Ladies and gentlemen, here at the Norris, at the beach, there was quite a few people, and I'd like to think that was because of the excitement about 1 Corinthians, but I suspect it has something more to do with the vitamin D descending onto our much vitamin D-deprived bodies. This We survived the winter, people. We survived the winter. and I'm, Yeah, we did. We did. It's like a Donner Party situation with all that rain. Um... But uh, anyone run the, the 5K this morning? The, the St. Paddy's Day 5K? Anyone? No one. Okay. Well, there were people who, they're probably into their third green beer at this point if they did. So uh, we'll pray that, I don't know, pray for something about green beer. Um, the, the series we're in is 1 Corinthians. I have a very, I think, wonderful slideshow. Sometimes you prepare a sermon, and sometimes you prepare a slideshow. And this Sunday I prepared a slideshow for the most part, so I'm so glad to be up here and display it with you. Um, we used to live on Knob Hill and Catalina down in Redondo Beach, California. Down in Redondo Beach, California. And we lived right in the middle of the route of a, a run. Redonda Beach has like giant 5Ks every other weekend, basically. And so the F- Super Bowl 5K would go right by our house. And my favorite thing to do with, with the kids, then Michelli and Brixton, who were really little, we would bring a big old speaker out, and we were about at the halfway point. And so we'd be cranking Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer, like, well, we're halfway there. Where's the, where's the rest of it? I kind of started at a high octave, so I get why you didn't join in with the song. And we would just love to watch the people in the halfway point. And sometimes you see the, the, the runners who are winning. They're out so fast in front. They're like two-minute miles or something. I don't think that's humanly possible. But my favorite was like the bear suit guy, the guy that wore like the bear suit. You know, and it was fun at the beginning of the race. He's taking selfies with everybody. Like, oh, look at that crazy bear suit guy or the dude in the tiger costume. And like by mile two, they're just like bear suit head in hand, kind of walking like I'm going to die. The coolest thing I ever saw, though, was in the middle of the race, three dudes had either made or purchased salmon costumes, like giant salmon costumes, not salmon colored, like the fish, salmon and they were running in the opposite direction of the entire crowd. And I go, that's brilliant. Hallelujah. I'm going to preach on that on Sunday. And so here it is. But as we adventure into 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul has had a one-song playlist on repeat for the last, like, three chapters. Just one song that has been repeating again and again and again. And it goes something like this. The manifold wisdom of God, the incredible glory and power and brilliance of God was most perfectly seen on a Roman cross. And if that is true, then we have to rethink everything. We really have to reconsider the race that we're running because for the Corinthians and for us, we're running in a race and most of us are going to be trotting along in the pack. We're moving slowly or quickly with a direction with a bunch of folks and we call this thing culture and we move in a direction 
And what Paul is announcing to the Corinthians is, hey, y'all, human flourishing, true beauty, true purpose, true freedom, truth is found in Christ. And Christ is running in a different direction. And we have to suddenly reconsider everything. And so in each chapter, Paul is going to be, and he's going to continue doing this all through Corinthians, he's going to be taking that larger concept that on a cross, that is the site where a slave would be killed in the honor and shame culture of the Roman Empire, a shameful death, naked, exposed for maybe up to a week sometimes, folks would, would have to be on a cross, that it's in that location that God, the God of the universe, came, dwelt, and most fully demonstrated his love for us. And so if that's true, and we want to follow Jesus, we may need to turn course, and we may need to swim upstream of our culture. So this is this is the large message of Corinthians, and he's applying it to a bunch of individual circumstances. How do you love God in this circumstance? How do you have, we've had that big word cruciform, that's a cross-shaped life in this circumstance. And the major issue he's been dealing with, and we found this out in chapter one, was, hey, the church has fractures, uh, fractures divisions that are um, opening up in this new baby young set of congregations in Corinth. And one of the major reasons why these divisions are popping up and are taking place is because the Corinthian Christians were running along the race of their culture. The honor and shame game that is played in every province all throughout the empire, they were playing it, except for they kind of spray-painted it with, like, Jesus a little bit. They made it smell a little more Christian-y, but they were still playing the same game. And the way they were playing it, in, in the case Paul's dealing with right now, is by certain powerful leaders identifying themselves with their favorite apostle and basically saying, that Christian celebrity, oh, that's my guy. That's who I follow. I'm with the cool kids. No, 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 I'm with Cephas. He's old school, man. He was with Jesus. Well, I'm with Apollos. His teeth are so white. His robe is so bleached white. Toga, they use urine, by the way, to bleach their togas. That's a fun fact. Bleached white. And he can make the hair on the back of your neck stand up when he talks. Ooh, I'm an Apollos guy. And some are like, oh, I'm with Paul. Hear that, Paul? I'm with you. I'm a Paul guy. And these divisions were breaking up because they were seeking honor and by the way, it was not inappropriate for them to do that based on the way they were born and raised. That's what you do. Remember junior high. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Junior high, lunch, um, lunchtime rules. Not the rules the adults gave, the rules the kids kind of operated on. Who were the cool kids? Were you a cool kid? Who could you eat with? Who couldn't you eat with? What happens to you, right? I know it's traumatizing, we have some, Chris is a therapist here if you need to talk to someone after working through your junior high experience. But that honor and shame thing we think of as coolness, for them, as adults, as entire communities, it was very important. So they're playing this game, they're making it smell like Christian-y, and Paul's going, no, 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 you're actually running with the herd. And life is going this way. 
and truth is going this way. And you're, you're trying to play one apostle off of another apostle to get a little more coolness for yourself. And what you're actually doing is destroying this beautiful thing called the miracle of the local church. So please stop. And so in chapter 4, in chapter 4, Paul is going to encourage and show a route out of the herd. He's going to show them the path out of this rut that they're running in with the rest of the folks they were born and raised with. He's going to say, here's the way out of the rut. He's going to point to a beautiful and often bewildering trail to human flourishing. And so today, we're going to think about it in ancient Rome, and we're going to think about it in the modern South Bay, and ask the question, like, how can we walk that beautiful and often bewildering trail to human flourishing? How many of you, and I mean this, how many of you who come here, or you gather at different times, because you really, truly want God's best? I don't, I don't say that as like a, a shame thing. Some of you don't care about God's best. No, I mean like how many of you are, I need life. I need true life. I need hope. De I'm desperate for hope. Even if it's not your whole being, there's that one pocket of your life that's screaming out like, I need something real. It's, there's got to be something real. And so I come and I worship and I hear because I need some life. And I want to, I'm that, I, I have that in me more often um, than not these days, I feel like, where there's just this daily need for truth and hope. I need it. And so was, as we enter into this pathway towards human flourishing, it's not just a nice Christian practice where we're polite for the preacher, which is nice when you are, of course, and we then go to lunch and forget about it. But rather, this moment, if it's a moment of reflection for you, I invite you into that. If you don't know Jesus and you're just hanging out with some people that brought you, uh, it's a big conspiracy. We brought, the Holy Spirit brought you here today to hear at least the Lord saying there's a brighter way. There's hope. There's truth. There's life out there. There's life. And I think we all kind of know it. So he points the way to this, uh, he points the way to the trail of human flourishing. And I have titled it, so I have some slides. So the first slide, I have given the title of this message. Um, it's a giant sand hill. Again, every sermon I preach, I love to use a sand hill. No! First Corinthians, beautiful, kind of broken. Next slide, that path based on First Corinthians 4, I am going to give it this title. So click the next one. Upside down and inside out. Just take a moment in awe of that slide because it took me far longer than I should have spent on a slide. The route to human flourishing, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, is going to be upside down and inside out. And you could leave that one up for a little bit. Paul is going to address head on this misconception that many folks in Corinth had that oh, this apostle's so cool, and they're so awesome, and they're so powerful, and that's where power is. This happens in churches. Y'all know I was raised in church, born and raised. I was practically born in a baptismal. I'm in church so much. I've said that before. I'll say it again. And let me tell you something. The game of power, honor, being cool in church, it, it happens. There are ways of making your way up this weird ladder of piety where suddenly you could stand up and be like, oh, the peasants down below will pray for them, right? And you could feel good about yourself or more powerful or I was at more prayer meetings or I was in more potlucks. That's what I grew up with, right? I sin less. 
or at least I hide it better so you don't know, so I'm more powerful in this community. And it can happen, and Paul's about to address it head on and go, all right, fine, if you think apostles are so awesome and the top of the food chain, let's take a look at what apostles do and what they are. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, 1, you could leave this up. He says, this then is how we ought to regard ourselves as servants. He uses this term, huperitas, as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. He literally uses a phrase we might translate as house sitters. What are apostles? Here's all we are. We're house sitters. We've been given this amazing property called the message of hope, called the mystery of Christ, reconciliation from God and man. And we, we're just... We're the pool guy. I'm the gardener of this estate. Some of y'all know this. Many of you do. Bray and I and my family, we live in an amazing home. Like, we live in a house that is insane. It's big. It's beautiful. It's big. Okay? And there's a couple in the church that believed in our foster care ministry, and we're looking for a place in the South Bay on a pastor's and professor's salary, and let's just say, South Bay's expensive. There's not a lot open. And they go, we want you to rent our house for what, we, what you can afford. And so we're renting this insane house. My favorite thing to do is when, uh, my favorite thing is when people come over that don't know the story. People that aren't part of the church, they're like, you know, whatever, some school friend, or uh, when we have social workers come over, uh, and they, they, they see the house. I'm like, oh, come on in. Your house is lovely. I'm like, oh, it's all right. It's beautiful. We like it. We like it. And like, they always end up finding a way to go, like, what do you do for a living? It's like, oh, I'm a professor. Like, what the heck? Like, what is, what is this? The reality is, I don't own this place. I rent it for an insane rate. I'm just a tenant here. That's all I am. It'd be fun to sit there and go, yeah, it's my place. We love it. And we're pretty awesome. And I'm the real estate mogul of the South Bay that makes this happen. But the reality is I just rent it. It's just my rental spot. And guess what? The apostles are saying the same thing. Yeah, it's majestic, this thing called the good news. It's a beautiful anthem to be able to proclaim to hungry hearts. But all we are is the pool guy, the gardener, the housekeeper. That's what I do. So if you want to think we're so cool, I just want to encourage you, think again. And he, he continues on, uh, I'll skip two to five, because we'll come back to those verses. But in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 8, he continues deconstructing their false vision of the apostles and the grandeur of being an apostle. And if you ever went to, been to Rome, and you see, for example, the, the column of Trajan. Anyone seen that? The column of Trajan? Anyone see the column of Marcus Aurelius? atop this giant Roman column of, like, Roman carnage. It's really interesting. Is like, um, when the empire was Christianized, I think sometime in the Renaissance, they put a big statue of St. Paul on top of one. And then a big uh, statue of St. Peter on top of Trajan's. And it's so funny because you're going like, oh my gosh, nothing could be more opposite uh, from their particular life than this giant monument of power, and they're atop. I think as we look at what actually apostles were and what they do, here's what he says. Now, brothers and sisters, Adelphoi, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so you may learn from us the meaning of saying, don't go beyond what is written. We might use that as a phrase, don't take yourself so seriously. 
don't take yourself so seriously. You're not that important. You're really not. Then you won't be puffed up by being a follower of one of us over against the other. Well, I like when Bill preaches. Well, I like when Matt preaches. Well, I'm a Todd guy myself. For who makes you different from everyone else? He goes, honestly, Corinthians, like, what do you have that you didn't receive? There is no bootstrap pulling up theology here. I was born with nothing and I built an empire. He's like, no, you didn't. You were given the faculties. You were given the opportunities. You were given the apprenticeship, the mentorship. You're not that big of a deal. Stop saying you are. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you didn't? Already, you have all you want. And now he starts getting sarcastic, which I kind of appreciate. Already, you've become rich. You've begun to reign. Wow, and you reign without us. Well, we apostles, we can't come near you, Corinthians. I wish that you had begun to reign so we might reign with you. He's essentially looking at a group and going, oh, you guys are so cool. Wow, you're cool. I bet all the kids on the playground think you're cool. Right? So he's basically lampooning the fact that they're playing this stupid small story game with the most incredible story that could ever be told. You're turning it into a caricature of what it actually is. The Roman Corinthians were living the Roman dream with their competition, with their quest for dominance and power and attention. I have another slide. We're in the upside down. The journey, operating in the upside down. This is one of the paths to freedom. This is one of the paths to say, where is Jesus at? Because I don't see him running with the herd. And you go, he's over here. you got to go upside down to find him. Um, the Roman dream looked like this. Next slide. I've shown you these pictures before. These are imperial iconography. These are emperors advertising Romanitas. That is the height of human potential and flourishing according to a traditional Roman um, cultural perspective would look like this. There's Emperor Claudius on the left and Emperor Hadrian on the right, and they're both standing over defeated provinces. That's what that represents, these areas they've defeated, and they're showing dominance. This isn't some weird, offbeat, creepy statue. They're creepy statues for sure. But in Rome, this is how emperors show you how good they are. So the Roman Corinthians, they're born and bred on this kind of thinking. So you become a follower of Jesus and you start figuring out how to build your little empires in the church. Okay, you can take that off for a second. Paul then begins to spell out in graphic detail, the social position and ministry disposition of the apostles. If Roman power and the good life in Rome looked like dominance, looked like I'm above my underlings, I'm the man, spotlight's on me. If that's what that looked like, he says, let's talk about the apostles. Verse 9 of chapter 4. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. And you might be thinking, oh, that's cool. I mean, it would be nice if they were at the front of the parade, but the back, it might be nice. You're getting the last bit of attention. But then it continues. We are on display at the end of a procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels, as well as to human beings. Let me translate exactly what Paul was articulating here, uh, because 
this is right in my research and writing and teaching. This is right on my speed dial. This is the stuff. I teach a class uh, at Biola called Roman Power, Christian Humility, and Violence as Entertainment, where we look at Roman spectacula, and we look at these sites that were wildly popular. You think Netflix is a big deal? Like, let me tell you something. In the ancient world, the, moon, the munus, or the day of gladiatorial games, was where it was at. And these sites, you could put the next slide after. I hope, hope uh, I didn't throw us off our rhythm too much. Behold, I give you the mound of dirt, and you're but a, a grain of sand and a giant mountain of sand. And God will work in your life. If you're listening online right now, we are working our way back to the slides. And if they don't work, that's okay. I actually um, brought a, a cardboard cutout of each slide for the beach service which also didn't work well. There it is. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, next slide. The Roman amphitheater. This is the Flavian amphitheater. You may know it as the Colosseum. It's the sort of giant Roman paragon of all amphitheaters. But amphitheaters, it's like two theaters, put them together, um, uh, were all over the empire. And arena, how many of y'all been to an arena before? Not a Roman arena, but just an arena. Any sports arena. You can hit, click the next one. Arena comes from the Latin term harina, meaning sand, and it describes any place where blood sports take place. Why sand? Because it soaks up the blood. Next slide. This is uh, Pompeii, a re sort of reconstruction of the um, amphitheater in Pompeii. Pompeii in Bay of Naples. Next slide. There's me standing at the base of an uh, amphitheater in Windonisa in Switzerland. North, um, this would be the northern part of the empire. Next slide. Now, I want, I want to make a point that I think Paul can make, and everyone would know what he's talking about. Paul can just say it, and they all know how an amphitheater works. Like no other spot in entertainment... Like no other spot in the empire, the amphitheater displayed for all to see social status and the strata of society. It displayed the hierarchy of power and importance. Those who mattered most and those who literally, without apology, mattered least in society. So the spots closest to the sand would be reserved for the top dogs, the most important folks in the community. The next up would be the next level. Here I have senators and equestrians, but that's in Rome. This, this could be replicated in different ways in the provinces. You have the intermediate categories. These are kind of folks that are well-to-do, but maybe not so powerful. And then the nosebleeds was left for women and poor folks. Women and poor folks. Okay, so on display in the arena was society, and you could see it all. But there is one group that everyone, no matter where you were sitting, contrasted with, and that is the folks on the sand condemned to die. So take the next slide. A day of games would look like, first of all, first click. Click it again, there you go. Morning animal hunts. There's a Spitara killing Victor the leopard. Next slide, midday executions. And then the next slide, the main event was always gladiatorial exhibitions. The midday executions are what Paul is talking about here. This is the time in which it was reserved for the enemies of Rome, for the scum of the earth, to socially die first and then physically die. Next slide. 
I just gave you a bunch of images. These are images from decorations. That's kind of morbid, but that's how the Romans rolled. Decorations uh, showing these midday games. So there's an individual. Notice what they're wearing. Next slide. Another individual. This is on a Roman lamp, an oil lamp, um, of an individual exposed to an animal. Next slide. Individuals heading off to die. Ad bestias by animals. Next slide. There's an individual having a really bad day with a leopard. Uh, this is the kind of condemned criminal Paul's referring to. Next slide. There's an individual that's on a pottery. Next slide. Next slide. It seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. That's what apostles are. As those condemned to die in the arena, we've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We're fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. Corinthians, cool kids at church, powerful individuals who know all their theology perfectly and like to start fights and create hierarchies in their church. Oh, you, you're honored. We're dishonored. We're fools. You're wise. We're weak. Oh, you're strong. You're honored. We're dishonored. To this very hour, we apostles, we go hungry and thirsty. And the term here, gumnituomen, first person plural verb, it literally means we go about basically naked. And it's referring back to this imagery that he's already put out there, that we're those people dying in the midday. So in the arena of life, y'all are scratching after the prime seats. You want to find yourself in the spotlight of power and prestige. And what I'm telling you is if you're following closely after Jesus, if you're on the heels of the work of Christ, you're on the sand. You are on the exact upside down of where everyone else is preferring to be. So you want to follow apostles? You want to hitch yourself to your wagon to an apostle? Guess what? You're on the sand. You're on a Roman cross, right? You're in the upside down and not the creepy stranger things upside down. But you're seeing life through a different set of lenses. What does this mean? Well, I can, um, I can tell you this much. I prepared half this sermon sitting in Los Angeles Children's Court. We had a... a, a and a really amazing day in court on Wednesday for our little baby, Franco. Uh, he, is, he is really close to adoptable right now. Yeah, cute. Yeah, we could clap for that. It was a big old, big old day in court. I'm telling you, emotions, tears, joy, sorrow for the loss that you see. But when you're sitting in the court, and you're waiting four hours for your case to be called. And you're looking at what truly is the after effects of poverty, of injustice, of addiction, of patterns of family violence. You're watching little babies cruising around, little two-year-olds playing with these junky toys that they have there at the court. Kids with their, their court bears. They all got a court toy and a court bear, and you watch them open their little toy. And you go, how many, how many court bears did they get? is how many times they've had to appear in court. Something a little baby should never go through. And you watch it, and you feel the weight of it, and you go, man, this is a sad place. And you could look at these kids, and you could think, man, this is hopeless. And yet, through the lenses of the cross, 
you realize that this is exactly where God can do some of the most amazing work and where God likes to do his biggest things is with these exact kinds of folks that have been thrown off and have been forgotten and have fallen through the cracks of society. And so Paul would say, do you want to know where the action is? It's not advertising how good your 401k looks or it's not hiding the blemishes of your family. It's stepping out vulnerably and saying, I'm not perfect. I follow Jesus. I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve. It's the upside down. And this might mean for all of us, for me and Bray, it's looking, it's looking at our life and our ministry and fighting back the lies that come polluting the mind again and again. Lies like this. Well, system's so broken. Kids have been hurt. Things are so bad, so tough. This could go wrong. That could go wrong. This could happen. And going, well, no one's... Like, we're hopeless here. There's no, we can't do anything. We can't control anything. We can't fix anything. It's fighting those back with the truth, which is we, are, we have our finger on the pulse of the work of God among kids that have been thrown out in society. And that's exactly where I want to be. That, that's for us. But for some of you, it might be reconsidering in your life individuals or communities, getting more time in places where there's real need. For some of you, it might be rethinking retirement a little bit. What, is, what does the dream look like if you're following Jesus? And so I'm not trying to prescribe an exact definition of what the upside down looks like. But the upside down for you might look like you initiate that phone call. You humble yourself. You apologize, even though you know for a fact the other person has most of the guilt and has done most of the damage in your relationship you say, I'm swallowing my pride. I'm giving it to Jesus. I'm going to the, the sand of the amphitheater, and I'm going to be vulnerable and say, hey, let's talk. It might be you getting real with some people around you who think you're bulletproof, who think you are living the American dream, and getting real with some areas of deep hurt or addiction or pain that you're, or vulnerability and saying, hey, here's where I'm at. It might mean in marriages and friendships a whole host of things. But it often will be going in a direction that's not comfortable and going there quickly, following after Jesus. So the upside down, the last point, and this one's only a couple minutes, I promise, uh, is the inside out. So next slide. Oh, there's a good picture right there. Apostolic ministry and Roman power. That's what it looks like from this passage. All right, next one. So that's operating the upside down. One more. I normally have a clicker when I lecture in my in my classes. There it is. Real from the inside out. The path to human flourishing. Real from the inside out. He says this in verse 3. He goes, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any other human court. Because he says the, the whole point, the whole point of what I'm doing is to be judged faithful. To be proven faithful. That's it. If you want to know what success is in life, success is not finances. It is not perfect kids. It is not physical thriving. Success is proving faithful with what you have been given. And he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. He basically says, I ain't going to read the comments you leave on my YouTube post. I don't care. I'm not going to go on to ratemyprofessor.com, which don't go on there. It's a scary place. Stay away from it. I don't care what you think of me. That's not that's not something that I value. I'm not even going to judge myself. My conscience is clear. That doesn't make me innocent. 
just because I feel good about my life. I feel like I'm doing a good job. I feel like I tried really hard. It's my favorite, uh, favorite student comment. Dr. P, I feel like I worked really hard. Do you ever get those ones? I feel like I did really good on this paper, but I got a C, and I want to say your feelings are wrong, right? <laughs> Paul's going, I don't care if I feel good about my life. God is the one, he says next line. The Lord will judge me. God sees through the bull scubala. He sees through it. He sees the truth. And he goes, I want God's judgment, not yours and not my own. And he continues, uh, skipping to verse 14. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as dear children. If you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers in Christ Jesus. I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. We live in a a hurricane of talk in our world today. Do Do you think? I mean, I think we live in a hurricane of talk. There's pundits. Everyone's got a post on Facebook. People define their virtue and their purpose in life around what position did I make a comment about or not. Like this whole world of talk, 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 of great PR, of manipulation, of makeup, smoke, mirrors, and all these things. And and this is not unlike the Corinthian context. And Paul basically says the world is starving for something real and authentic. The world is so tired, I'm speaking to myself now, of hearing about Jesus and, and church and Christian people telling them stuff, and then they know all they have to do is wait long enough, and that, that Christian leader, he'll implode. She'll implode. It'll fall apart. It'll be fake. I'll know it. Well, wait and see. I'll see it's fake. And what Paul is saying is, I'm not here to dazzle you. I want you to see my life. I want that to be my major ministry contribution. And he goes on, he says, for this reason I sent to you Timothy. So Timothy's reading this letter. Timothy's reading this letter to the Corinthians most likely. My son whom I love. And let me tell you something about Timothy. He is faithful in the Lord. Paul tells the Philippians, another Roman colony, he tells them, I hope to send you Timothy, this is Philippians 2, that you may be cheered and receive news when I receive news about you, that I might be cheered up. And he says this about Timothy. I have no one else like him who will genuinely care for your welfare. Everyone else looks for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Like, what is the definition of exemplary Jesus-following leader? To Paul, it is not, I'm a visionary. I got big vision for you. There's nothing wrong with vision. It's not, I'm really powerful speaker. I'm highly intelligent. I can raise money like no one else. Those are actually not the definitions of the kind of leader that Paul goes, this is the one, number one draft pick I want coming to see you. What is it for him? This guy actually cares about you. He really cares about you. If I ask you right now, give me the top three sermons that have rocked your world. The top three sermons that have shaped your life for Christ in powerful ways. You'd be like, well, this ain't one of them. But, but you'd be thinking about it, right? Maybe one pops in. Maybe two. But it's going to take a little while to really get your head around that and say, well, how much did that sermon really impact me? But if I asked you, name three people in your life and your story that have impacted you, that have showed you Jesus. Didn't talk about it. They showed it to you. You can go boom, 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 boom. And also, sadly, you can also identify the toxic ones. That in the, in the name of Jesus, 
have shown you something very toxic, something very different, right? And so I guess what this whole point of living from the inside out, the whole, the whole goal of my ministry, what I want to say, and, and I'm saying this to you and I mean this with all my heart, I pray that my ministry and my life, the long game of it, will not be, he was a good teacher. He wrote a good book or two. He had really awesome, inspiring vision for the churches he was a part of. I really, honestly don't care for those things to be um, legacy stuff. What I really pray is that it can be, yeah, he was a screw-up in a lot of areas. He was kind of a, um, a goofy, and he, he definitely made mistakes. But man, he legitimately cared about people. He legitimately believed and cared for Jesus. He wrestled with doubt here and there, but he really wanted to authentically pursue the things of God. And so for that to be the legacy, and as a church, I could tell you, I could speak for Bill and Todd and Denise and Matt, Matt Engel. There's a man, I'm just going to say it, who I've watched him from the time he was 13 years old. If I was writing a letter to another community, I would send it with with a guy like Matt Engel. I'm, I'm saying this. Some of you have your kids in, in youth ministry. I pray, Matt, hold on for Brixton, Michelli, Franco, and Calvin. Hold on, baby. No retirement for you. And I'm not, I know it's, he hates this with all his heart, but I just, want, I just want to put it out there. Like, with all genuine truth, who legitimately cares about the people he's around. And to me, that's delicious. That's delightful. And I can go down the list. I got a Bill McPhee. I got Chris Iamos. Yeah, he's kind of a jerk, but he's okay. No. I could list people, right? But that, that, that to me is what inspires me about church. So I'll shut this thing. I'll land this plane by saying um, let's, let's live it from the inside out. Let's just be authentic. Let's be real with our love for Jesus and where we're not. Let's get people around us encouraging us. And that's where life is, upside down and inside out. And so as we continue on to communion and finish up, um, or I, I guess launch us into a week of worship and delighting in the life God's given us, um, as the band comes, comes on up, we are going to um, dip a piece of bread into some grape juice, which represents the bread, the body of Christ given for us and the blood poured out for us so that we can truly thrive. We can live God's best, God's design for our life in relationship with him and others. So I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you that, Lord, your mercies are new every morning. Your grace abounds. Your favor is so rich. And Lord, what really matters is so rarely in the spotlight. It's so rarely in a large tower on a tall hill for all to see security and power. But rather, Lord God, it's on the sand of the arena. It's leading the agenda of love it's caring for those who are broken and forgotten. It's opening our hands to the unlovable. It's crossing the aisle 
for folks that think so differently than us and seeing the human dignity in them, mourning with those who mourn, rejoicing with those who rejoice, and in all things, in love, true love. Thank you, Jesus. I pray as a dude speaking up here, God, I don't want my life to be a flash of exhilarating ministry that burns out. God, I want a long, delicious, rigorous, true, obedient ministry. Thank you, Jesus. God, help me. Amen.